on this episode of the Wild Rose Vet Podcast. I mean, nature knows what it's doing, nine times out of ten. But the problem is many times we're dealing with a nature that also has to deal with humans that are not playing ball. This is the Wild Rose Vet Podcast with Dr. Savannah Howes-Smith. All right. So today, uh, today on the podcast, we have Lil Duperin, who's a very good friend of mine, and we work together with Wildlife Rescue. And today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite topics on wildlife, and that's discussing the human impact on our wild species. And uh, so how's it going, Lil? How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How about you? I'm not too bad. I've got half a cup of coffee into me. I think we're good. Um, <laughs> and so uh, today I want to talk about um, human impacts on wildlife because uh, really the reason that wildlife rescue exists is that there are interactions between humans and wildlife. And at that interaction point is where animals can get injured, animals can be killed or separated. Um, you know, you get orphaned animals and things like that. And these negative effects are direct outcomes of human activities. And um, I think it's a really important topic to discuss because it really gets down to the meat of it, which is why do we rescue wildlife? Why is this something that we do? And why is it something that we both do? Oh, you're right. And the mandate of the Wildlife Centre that I work for, Medicine River, is that we don't interfere on nature on nature. So mm -hmm. if a coyote is taking a fawn, that is part of nature. We do not interfere. Uh, and where our place is when uh, that fawn's mum has been killed by a car. Mm -hmm. And uh, now that fawn is absolutely helpless and we then can help it. Yeah, yeah. And I think we're seeing that a lot as we encroach upon wild spaces. I mean, developments are happening all the time. People are spending more time in the outdoors. And I, I feel like the last couple of years in particular, there's been a very high upswing of the number of calls that wildlife centers are receiving, the number of cases that are being dealt with. And I think a large part of that is a combination of increased interaction, but I'm, I'm kind of hoping a little bit about increased awareness as well. I agree. I think with the pandemic, a lot of people staying home, they were seeing things that normally they would have been at work. And mm -hmm. uh, what comes to mind is uh, crows on the ground or robins. And uh, uh, people have called and there's a crow on the ground and it's being <laughs> attacked by other crows. And my first questions are, does it have a short tail, blue eyes and pink in the mouth? Uh, people don't know that these certain birds, crows, robins, things like that, jump out of the nest about a week before they can fly. Mm -hmm. They scatter and the, the parents look after them and teach them and feed them. And that's what the other crows were doing. They were teaching this baby on the ground of uh, what predators were around and, and how to protect itself. Yeah. And how many times have we, I mean, I think that's a huge problem is a uh, uh, bird napping where a lot of people will with good intentions um, don't understand what they're seeing, that it's actually a fledgling. And so then they'll kidnap the little bird, take it to a wildlife center. And now it's odds have decreased because its parents aren't taking care of it. 
So true. And that happens, of course, with fawns. Mm-hmm. Um, enough people around Drayton Valley, where I am now, know that I do this and will call and say, you know, I found this fawn curled up in the field. There's no mum in sight. And I brought it into the house and I say, take it back. Mum is there. Mm-hmm. This is normal. And she's watching you. Mm-hmm. That's why she's not coming out. <laughs> exactly. Because you're there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if it, I mean, that's a totally different philosophical question about, um, I don't know if a lot of humans realize that we're actually predators, and we're actually quite terrifying to most creatures. <laughs> you know, we don't we don't feel that way in our everyday life most of the time, but we really are quite scary. Um, the way that we move, the loud sounds we make, and our size. Um, and so a lot of times, a lot of these behaviors that people see where they think the animal's injured or abandoned, it's usually because um, you're scaring everybody else away. <laughs> You bring up a good point. So when I have things in my care, I don't talk Mm -hmm. around them. Mm -hmm. And uh, the only time I ever look in on them is when I'm medicating or feeding them. Otherwise, I leave them warm, dark and quiet to just rest. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it's it's interesting because I think the only time I see wildlife that quote unquote, seem comfortable around people have either been imprinted on humans or tamed, or sometimes I see wild birds um, coming in way closer than they probably should when people are feeding them in their yards. Um, And I know there's a lot of controversy these days about whether or not we should be feeding birds, whether we should be feeding wildlife at all in these kinds of ways. Um, Sometimes I wonder if it might, an unintended side effect might be reducing the fear of humans when really that fear should probably stay intact. (laughs) The fear should stay intact because not every human has uh, positive reasons for mm-hmm. interacting mm-hmm. with wildlife. And certainly it's against the law to feed mammals anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, birds, I don't think, um, I've fed the birds in my yard for years mm-hmm. and I've never had them get too comfortable with me. But certainly when people put out apples for deer or things like that. Yeah. Yes, it's causing an issue with that animal. Well, and uh, there's actually some some cities have discussed bylaws about preventing feeding birds in backyards, uh, quoting things like the spread of mycoplasma with house, fin- like, uh, you know, house sparrows will spread mycoplasma in these gathering areas. And it's causing abnormally high rates of disease transmission because you've got these interspecies that are mixing in a small area that normally wouldn't be around each other. So we're getting diseases passed around that wouldn't have been before. Um, you've got animals that are losing their fear of people. You've got increased interaction between domestic animals like cats and dogs picking off birds that are at feeders. Um, and so I think these are all these are all human impacts that something as benign as feeding the birds can have. And I think it's it's always fascinating to me to just think about how how much of an effect we can really have from very simple things that we do. Out of the kindness of our hearts, yeah, I have to yeah. say. Makes me sound like a stick in mud where I'm like, no feeding the birds, no fun allowed. (laughs) Well, I'm a stick in the mud when it comes to um, having cats roaming free. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, 
people hate starlings because they were introduced to North America, and yet they don't realize that cats are an introduced species and really don't belong out in the environment mm-hmm. because of the they don't just catch mice. They catch a lot of our songbirds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's a it's a topic that's controversial. Um, some people are dead set against the idea of having cats as only indoors, and then you get other people that are, you know, very adamant that they must be indoors as well. I like uh, I like your setup at home. Like your catio. <laughs> you had a catio before it was cool. <laughs> Like that little setup outside is pretty sweet. And I think it's a nice compromise where you've got a cat that has some outdoor access so they can get fresh air, eat the grass, because we know cats like to do that. Um, But then they're staying safe because, you know, they're not out roaming. They're not getting hit by cars themselves. They're not getting injured. They're not killing off wildlife either. So it's kind of like this nice compromise. And I'm glad we're seeing uh, more and more people embracing that. I think so, as they learn that... Coyotes come into cities and towns, and mm-hmm. uh, it's not usually the fox picking off ca- uh, cats and that. It's the coyotes. Yeah. And uh, and like you say, being hit by cars. And I think it's a proven thing that a cat who lives indoors lives a much healthier, mm-hmm. happier, mm-hmm. longer life mm-hmm. than one that is outside. Oh, absolutely. No, I definitely agree with that especially if they do have an outlet for a little bit of outdoor access in a in a controlled fashion. Because um, there are some cats that are absolutely wing nuts when they're indoors, especially when they're young. Um, they yes. just, those guys really do need a, a space outdoors where they can just go hang out and run around and not be um, a pest <laughs> to everybody inside. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think that's great that you bring that up. That's a, that's a huge topic, and it can get people really fired up. Um when uh, I know in uh, in my day-to-day practice, when I have people coming in with cats, I try to encourage and I'll try to broach the topic and sometimes it backfires on me, but I still try. So that kind of uh, brings up another idea, um, an idea of encroachment on uh, on where where do wildlife belong? You know, like why with all these interactions we're having with like urban coyotes, um, uh, people spending more time in outdoor spaces and having bear encounters, um, encounters with uh, wild ungulates. Like uh, you hear like, every year there's some tourist that almost dies getting bowled over by elk in Banff. Um, oh, yeah. And I think it's, it's interesting to... To try to visualize, like, where do, in these spaces where we overlap, who belongs there and in what capacity, you know, and and do we have enough space set aside for for wild animals? That is so true. I remember years ago, I had a moose that used to come and chew on my apple trees. And so I phoned Fish and Wildlife to see if I could do something. And, and, uh, I mean, you know, the suggestions were hang soap and, and, or tin pie plate and things like that. And I remember the officer saying at the end, if it's a real problem, we will come and remove it. And I said to him, this is their home. I've moved into their home. And I kind of surprised him because he said, I wish more people would have that attitude. A lot of people don't. A lot of people are like, this is my space and I'm going to shoot things that come into my property. And I think it's I think that's it's it's a harmful, harmful mindset to have. Well, every time we take something out of the environment like that without doing it for food, I have mm-hmm, to say, mm-hmm. um, and not having a good reason to mm-hmm. take it out. 
you are interfering with that web of life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that kind of comes down to our core of what wildlife rescue is, is that we're trying to, animals that were effectively removed from that ecosystem, I feel like we're trying to put them back in in a capacity that they're meant to fill. Um, and that, uh, yeah, that's a good point to draw a parallel to that with people shooting coyotes, shooting cougars, shooting um, moose and stuff that come into their property. I mean, you're removing it from the ecosystem without actually participating in it. Because I think, uh, and that's a whole new controversial topic, is uh, hunting, especially subsistence hunting. Um, that also gets uh, pretty controversial. And uh, I find that ethical hunting is a, has a overall a beneficial impact on wildlife. Um, and uh, I feel like we get focused on all the bad things humans can do for wildlife, but I think there's a few good things that we do as well. I agree. Um, it's interesting as a, a rehabilitator, I am not against hunting as long mm -hmm. as it's done properly yep. because animals that population, especially things like white-tailed deer mm -hmm. that have, uh, really their populations explode when they take advantage of agricultural land and everything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if those populations were not kept in check, then we would end up with things like chronic wasting disease yeah. uh, because nature will intervene when there is an overpopulation. Yeah, and it might be in a in a way that's not as, uh, uh, you know, not as, as good as it could be, I feel like. I mean, nature knows what it's doing nine times out of ten. But the problem is many times we're dealing with a nature that also has to deal with humans that are not playing ball. <laughs> Yes. I mean, on the on the topic of hunting, um, keeping populations in check, I mean, another population that's indirectly kind of our problem that we created is uh, the wild boar population um, and how it just kind of runs rampant. There's not really any predators for wild boars. It's an introduced species. And so um, there's actually, I've heard reports, there's a few issues with wild boars in northern Alberta um, and I think most recently in Elk Island National Park. Have you heard anything about that? You're absolutely right. And I have actually, I've heard of wild boar north of me for years. Mm -hmm. um, and they are an introduced species. They either escaped or were intentionally released mm. when the market for these animals uh, evaporated. And they are causing a huge issue in the environment because they uh, are hard on the native species. Mm -hmm. They root up a lot of uh, land. They can have lots of piglets every year. Mm -hmm. So uh, they are, um, and they are dangerous. Uh, they are not your domestic pigs, that's for sure. Yeah, because I think these guys would count as feral at this point, where they were a domesticated species that then is now living wild. And feral species are different than native populations because they, they again, they kind of have the same issue that a lot of humans have is that we were existing somewhat outside or parallel to the natural ecosystems in an area. And then it causes problems as a result. Uh, sometimes I'll unpopularly draw comparisons to wild horse populations as well. <laughs> yes. Because uh, a lot of people, yeah. it's interesting, isn't it, how humans will place, um, people will place a, a certain value on some animals and not on others, where you'll have some people that, you know, they 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 decry the wild boars, but then wild horses are beautiful and, they, and they're part of nature and they really like it. And you're like, but they're both feral species that don't actually belong there. <laughs> And that's true. Yes, absolutely. The only thing is with the wild boar, they can be 
dangerous for people and yes. dogs and things. Yeah, yeah, they Whereas can get the, big. I mean, I've heard of some that are like 300 pounds out there. Oh, yeah. they. Uh, I don't want to meet one. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And they definitely, I mean, as a domesticated species, sometimes I wonder if that's why they're not so afraid of humans either. <laughs> You're probably right. Yeah, yes. Yeah, that they don't mind uh, cohabitating closely to human settlements and stuff. And it's and it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunate that it's made its way into a national park because it's actually, uh, it's trickier to eradicate animals that live in national parks because there's a lot of, thankfully, there's a lot of legislation and rules that come around uh, population management of animals in national parks. Um, and that's uh, and actually, I read a really good book. I wish I could remember the name off the top of my head, but it was about bears and talking about how um, the management of bears in national parks has evolved over the years, and that the number one cause of death for bears in like the seventies was actually park rangers <laughs> um, because the only way that they knew how to manage bears in the national parks was to shoot them. Um, and nowadays we've seen an evolution where, you know, re relocation and, and educating the public about how to be bear safe and how all that's kind of changed. So I wonder, it'll be interesting to see 10, 15 years from now, um, if boars become established in a national park, how they're going to go about addressing that. And I mean, it's going to be a little different, right? Because bears are not a feral species. <laughs> they're Correct. actually, they belong there. And, uh, and uh, even though we think that they're aggressive and out to kill people, they actually aren't. Um, whereas boars, I think, actually can be quite aggressive. They actually will. They'll actually go for you. Well, again, they're not afraid of people the way uh, bears usually are. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess that's what distinguishes a, a dangerous bear. Um, that classification is that they've lost their their fear and wariness of humans, and then they just go do what they want and become aggressive. Because they've learned to depend on human food. I, I like the one story about the farmer that was by the wildlife center, and he came to warn them about um, he was out checking his cows and mm -hmm. he came, he was walking because it was uh, in the trees and he came upon a grizzly sow with three cubs and uh, he knew he couldn't get back to his truck. So mm -hmm. he climbed a tree oh. and he said this sow huffed and puffed around the bottom of the tree for a while and then took her cubs and left. Mm -hmm. So that sow had no reason. She didn't want to kill him. She mm -hmm. was just warning him stay away from my babies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I tell people that because they think that every bear they see is going to attack them. Um, I've had people think that an owl, an injured owl is going to attack them. Well, no. no. Look at the size that we are compared to the owl. <laughs> it wants to get away. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's true. And I'm not sure where this idea of aggressive wildlife comes from. I think it's because it sticks in our minds and maybe ties into a primal fear that we all have, like an instinct to be afraid of of wildlife and it's probably smart you know back in the day when you had to you know when you were part of the food web <laughs> uh, that was probably a legitimate fear to have and I wonder if maybe that's a bit of a, a holdover from then most of the time the only reason we're encountering them is that we're occupying the same spaces and it's hard to Although it's really, like, I love going to these spaces, you know, like the national parks and the mountains and stuff. I always try to think about the impact my mere presence is there. I mean, I have all this other space I can go. I can go to the cities. I can go to towns. I can spend time in all these places. But wildlife can't. They really only have those wild spaces. So is it ethical for humans who have all the rest of the world to go hang out in? Is it ethical for us to go into these spaces where they live and take over what little space they have left? 
Well, I think our souls need that Mm -hmm. time out in nature. Mm -hmm. As long as we are leaving the wildlife alone, uh, not interfering in any way, not leaving garbage Mm -hmm. out there Mm -hmm. or food or anything, as long as we can be respectful of Mm -hmm. their territory, uh, and I speak because I love being out in nature. And, I know. Uh, I know. Me too. I remember we had this conversation when we were out camping about the ethics. We're sitting there around the campfire. I'm like, is it ethical for us to even be here? <laughs> you know, we're supposed to be relaxing while camping, but instead we're debating the finer points of our existence in the current ecosystem. <laughs> the, the philosophy of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess all we can do is just try to try to strive to minimize negative impacts and and uh, improve our positive impacts we have. Because, I mean, uh, a corollary to um, the bad things about occupying these spaces, um, it's people's recreational interest that has prevented it from being developed. And you know, that's a big controversy right now over opening up some of that ranch and rangeland that's along the the Southern Rockies there. Um, is uh, people want to keep those spaces wild because they can go and appreciate them. And if we lose that appreciation, then it goes to coal mining and it goes to um, logging and it gets lost to industry instead. So in a way, it actually is kind of beneficial that, that people spend time in those wild spaces. Remember that bucket of baby skunks that we were helping to feed that one time? Oh, my God. They're so cute. <laughs> oh, they are so. And uh, it just takes everything in they... you to not pet them because you're not supposed to, you know, they're not pets. But I really, really want to. <laughs> I had gotten one one time that a little girl had been feeding with a doll bottle. And uh, I had it in a box. And when I looked in the box, this little tiny thing ran toward me and waved its tail. Of course, it had nothing to spray, but so cute. And that that instinct is already in them at that age. Yeah, yeah. even though you can't do anything about it, just full of P and V <laughs> coming oh. at you. And the neat thing is that uh, these... Um, skunks usually get fostered out to wild mums mm-hmm. again, who can do a lot better job. And I always tell people, uh, wildlife, uh, they can't count. And so they don't even realize <laughs> there's an extra one or two that they are teaching to feed. Wasn't there a skunk that Gwen had fostered? Wasn't like, like 12 babies or something onto one? Well, I remember at the Wildlife Center, um, one year, I ended up taking four babies down mm-hmm. and their resident female, in, mm-hmm. when she was out with all of them that Carol had fostered, 28 babies. Oh, my God. And and at that age, the mother just teaches them what to eat, right? Yeah, she doesn't have to provide a a lot with them. She just basically herds them around and shows them what to eat. So it's doable. It's not like it's taxing on her or anything. Although, I mean, having having an entire classroom of baby skunk school children would be a handful, I'd imagine. I don't think they just go about uh, eating and the babies watch what they eat. So Mm -hmm. if one wanders off somewhere, she doesn't even know because, again, she can't count. Yeah. (laughs) We lost Timmy and nobody knows where he went. (laughs) Oh my God. Thank you for listening to the Wild Rose Vet Podcast. If you like the show, please leave us a five star rating and a review. And while you're at it, why not tell your friends about us? Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you're listening to us right now. Check out the show notes to see where you can find us on social media 
and for more information on the Dr. Savannah Wild Rose Vet television series. The Wild Rose Vet podcast is hosted by Dr. Savannah Howe-Smith, produced by Trent Wilkie, Shirley McLean, Dylan Wirtz, Tanya Koenig-Gauthier, and Valerie Oud-Marchand. Recorded by Ian Armstrong at Wolf Willow Studios, with original music by Wayne LaVallee.